Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast. Show me the meaning. My name is Jared. I'm joined here by the Show Me the Meaning dudes. We've got Ryan. Hey, film fans. And Austin. Hey, hey. So today we're breaking down the 2017 thriller Get Out, written directed by Jordan Peele, starring Daniel Kaluuya. Did I fuck that up? Does anyone know how to pronounce it? I mean, I've heard it said like that in multiple talk shows, so I think that's about right. Okay, awesome. Good. We're going to stick with that then. All right, so let's get some first impressions. Let's start this time with Austin. All right, so I was living in Dublin the first time that I saw this movie. And I had heard all the hype about it. And then the widest place on earth. What's what's that? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. Oh, okay. I I totally missed it. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I'd heard all the hype, and uh, there's a little bit of a delay for most of the films that come out in America. Uh, Sometimes it's a couple of months, sometimes it's even like up to a year until it comes out in the UK and Ireland, which have similar release dates. So it had been a while uh, after it was released when I saw it. So I went in, I saw it, and I had crazy expectations. And I had heard that like the audiences just were like roaring throughout it. And I was really expecting this like this hollering, hooping and hollering time. But I forgot that I was seeing it with a bunch of like white Irish people who didn't get a lot of uh, urban inside jokes. Like they don't know what the NCAA is. So at the end, when Rose is looking through the profiles of all these NCAA basketball players, I fucking cracked up, but nobody else around me did because they just don't understand what that is. So um, that aside, I still had a fucking amazing time. I thought the movie was hilarious. I thought it was frightening um, just on on, on a plot level. And then of course, I think it's extremely smart. It's sharp. The acting performances are amazing. I had a little bit of a debate the other day with a buddy of mine about whether or not Daniel Kaluuya deserves these best actor noms that he's getting. And I think 100% because it's a really scaled back and subtle, but I think amazing and poignant performance. And for me, that's more important than the big bravura, like I can transform and become another human sort of thing anymore. Um, I like those as well. So Daniel Day-Lewis is obviously still the man, but I love this type of performance. I think it's amazing across the board. Uh, Allison Williams is amazing. Bradley Whitford is always fantastic. And then the dude that plays Rod, I think his name is Rel. He's fucking fantastic. So I loved it. Cool. And Ryan? Um... Yeah, this movie's awesome. I uh, uh, when I first saw it, I had a pretty different experience. You know, I've seen it like four or five times now. The first time I seen it, I did not know what it was about at all. No one had spoiled it for me, which I think is the best way to see this movie. Obviously, because um, it does kind of hinge it on on you know the twist. And then the second time you see it, once you know the twist and you're looking through it, you know you see everything differently. And now I'm kind of looking at it just as a filmmaking specimen. Like I'm like like just how amazing this movie is kind of constructed. Um, it's such a weird, it's like belongs to no, to lots of genres and no genre at the same time. It's a horror movie kind of, but like not in any traditional sense. There's no blood. There's no like people, you know, there, well, I, I say that, no, the, he, he does kill people at the end, but I'm just saying that, that it's not like a slasher, you know, nightmare about an Elm street movie. Um, and, it's just a super, yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to get into it. It's just, it's a horror movie about something I'd never seen a horror movie be about before. It's like a socially conscious horror yeah. thriller. Yeah, and it's and it's amazing. So, yeah, let's let's get into it. 
cool. So the first time I saw this movie, I'm actually in the same camp as Austin. I missed the initial boat where I did not see it immediately when it came out in theaters, but I had heard hype, hype, hype. And then also, like Ryan, I was fortunate enough to isolate myself from any spoilers or knowing what exactly it was about. So by the time I saw it, I was blown away. It was so much smarter than I could have ever imagined it would be. And, uh, you know, that's kind of, I, I love movies that have a script with layers and symbols and kind of heightened levels of meaning upon watching it again. Although I will say, watching it this time, this is probably the fourth time I've seen it. So this is a movie that is, it all functions, it all works because it's basically a big old play on withholding information. Once you know the twist, it's, it's interesting. So Austin was saying when we were talking about Old Boy how it's such a different experience when you watch it the first time versus the second time. Yeah. So the first time I watched this movie, I was on the edge of my seat wondering what is going on. You know, something eerie is going on with the gardener and the maid, but I don't know what it is. And then when you find out, it just hits you in the head and you're like, oh my God, this is so brilliant. But then the second time you watch it, it's a whole nother experience where all of a sudden you're recontextualizing everything you see, knowing the reveal at the end and knowing kind of the the uh, the real meaning of what people are doing. So when mm-hmm. you're seeing the Logan character and he's acting odd, now you know he's acting odd because it's an 80-year-old white man in the body of like a 30-year-old black dude. So th- that's obviously weird. And now you contextualize it that and you know what's actually going on. Yeah. And so, but now the fourth time I'm watching it, I guess, you know, we talked about, so with Old Boy, Austin talked about poetry versus prose. And this is very much uh, a film, uh, a prose. It is very much about it's almost like the script is the most powerful thing here. Once you know the information, once you know the twist, and once you've rewatched the movie and contextualized the twist within everything happening, it's it's not as it doesn't grab you as much as Old Boy in that the actual form of the movie and the way that it moves, the way that it's cut together, the way the rhythm and the music come together, they don't really capture you as much as just the logic of what's going on. So although I love this movie, and by the way, it's probably my favorite movie of the year. It's not a movie I can watch 30 times like Old Boy. Mm. Right. My favorite movie of the year was Good Time. Oh, that's a great one. Just to throw that in there. <laughs> so just to let you guys know, the next movie we will be doing is Gattaca, directed by Andrew Nichols, starring Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. We will have links in the description of this podcast on where you can watch Gattaca, and hopefully you guys will watch it along with us and break it down with us next week. Hell yeah. All right, so on to the recap. Award-winning photographer Chris Washington is headed to the country with his girlfriend Rose to meet the parents. But knowing that he's her first black boyfriend, he's a bit nervous about what the weekend holds. Once he arrives, he's met with the typical awkwardness of white people overperforming the acceptance of his blackness. But something else far more unsettling is going on. The two black servants, Walter and Georgina, are acting eerie, unlike any black person Chris has ever encountered. That night, Rose's mom, Missy, hypnotizes Chris to quit smoking, making him experience a sunken form of self-spectatorship called the Sunken Place. At the annual Armitage party, Chris is attacked by Logan, the only other black man at the party, who is also acting bizarre. While Chris and Rose contemplate leaving, we see a sort of slave auction going on, with the guests bidding for Chris. With the help of his best friend, Rod, Chris discerns that Logan is actually a distant acquaintance of his who's been missing for six months. Now knowing that something fucked is going on, Chris tries to leave when Rose turns on him and with the help of the rest of the family, traps Chris in the basement where they inform him that he is the next subject of the coagula procedure in which white minds are inserted into black bodies, thus putting Chris's mind in the sunken place forever. 
Chris is able to escape from his captivity and kill the Armitage family. Just as he's about to leave, a cop car rolls up and the optics of the situation makes things look grim. But thankfully, it's Rod who comes out of the cop car who returns Chris to safety. End of movie. Yay, Rod! Yay, Rod. (laughs) So I wanted to start off talking about, uh, talking a little bit more about how this movie works with multiple viewings. So it's not only that when you watch it for the second time, you're able to contextualize what's really going on. But one of the things I think that makes this movie so brilliant is that when we watch it for the first time, like Chris, we're constantly doubting whether something odd is going on or not. Because a lot of the bizarre behavior of the people at the party can be explained by kind of awkward, inauthentic reactions that white people have with people of color. So what's really going on is that we have this bizarre cult that, uh, you know, inserts white minds into black bodies. And But when we're watching it the first time and we're saying, yeah, something's weird going on, but it's not weird enough for us to assume something horrific because it's something that's common among white people or older white people or unhip white people interacting it's with black awkward people. For a while. Right, it's awkward. But I think there's something so awesome about that precision and how, you know, yes, what's actually going on is super horrific, but the but it can be and is initially interpreted as something that's relatively normal. I think that's a really powerful statement. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so first of all, I just have to get this out of the way, and we don't have to belabor this point at all. But <laughs> as much as I love this movie, and as much as the social commentary is interesting, and as much as the acting is fantastic, yada, 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 the philosophy of mind in this movie is a little bit suspect. The idea that you can just transfer a brain into another vessel and that that person's consciousness will live on is a little problematic, to use a term that Jared loves me using so much that I'm just going to continue to use until it doesn't have meaning anymore. <laughs> From a logical, for now, on, I'm just, and for now on, I'm just going to introduce you as Captain Problematic. <laughs> you mean from a logical uh, standpoint, know, or from like wanna, a philosophical like I said, I don't wanna, standpoint? I don't want to belabor this point, but there, you know, there are some people like Ray Kurzweil who believe that we're going to be able to like download our consciousness, or let's say upload our consciousness to silicone-based life forms rather than like carbon-based bodies, right? And then there are other people like David Chalmers, who is a philosopher of mind, who says that that's absolutely impossible. And I am just more on the skeptical side that we're going to be able to just transfer a, a piece of flesh and stick it into another vessel. <laughs> well, so you're, you're talking about like say, the yeah, you're talking about the logic of this. Ta- I mean, it's <laughs> obviously <laughs> metaphorical in a sense. I mean, it's a horror movie. I know, but I just had to. I just I had to say. All right, all right, all right. You know. He had to get that out of the way. <laughs> okay, he had to get out of the way that this probably wouldn't happen in real life. But Thank some you, people Austin. think <laughs> that you'll be able to do this. That you'll be able to like literally take your brain and put it in, or you're somehow like transfer so wait, your. Are you saying you don't believe in computer. hypnotism? Do you not believe in hypnotism, Austin? You know, I've seen hypnotist shows, and then I've talked to friends afterwards, and they're like, oh, I was faking. So I'm kind of like... <laughs> so you don't. Yeah, I'm skeptical, okay? Right. I mean, I... I, I on a... Uh, to go down this I mean, route. I don't know if I believe in hypnotism, but it still works. There's a suspension of disbelief well, here. Oh, of course. In the movie, who gives a shit? Right, you, yeah. You suspend your disbelief. But in real life, just to, just to entertain Austin's point, I, I think hypnotism, there's something to it for some people. I think some people are more susceptible th- than others. I don't think we're going to be able to translate brains. But in terms of the microchip thing, I definitely think that's going to happen. No question. We will You're see. You're going to be able to somehow put your experience into, you know, upload it somewhere. You know, talk to me in Ray, 50 years. Ray Kurzweil says by 2030. So we got about another 12 years. And then if this podcast is still going, we'll be able to settle this disagreement. <laughs> 
Back to the movie. Yeah, okay. Back to this awesome movie. This whole... uh, so the other thing I wanted to bring up about this is that when Chris in- encounters Georgina and Walter, the gardener and the maid, what do you think he initially thinks? I mean, he thinks that they're weird. He thinks that they're hostile. But I think uh, more to my previous point, one of the things that makes this so powerful is that we, the audience, not knowing what's going on upon that first viewing, almost assume that what probably happened is that Walter and Georgina have been forced to adjust their personalities to fit in with the white family. So I think that it's just so interesting how when the first time you watch it, the movie almost baits you with one social commentary. And then when the twist is revealed at the end, it reveals a different social commentary. So that's why I think that's one of the reasons why I think this movie is brilliant on a multitude of levels. That was your first thought with Georgina and then that you were like, okay, they're just before try- I knew what was going they're on. They're just trying to play it up. I mean to me I was like, this is maybe I've seen too many horror movies, but I was just like, okay, something's up with them. What is up? And it's and then once the hypnotism thing came in, I was like, okay, they're clearly hypnotized. Mm. I mean I was kind of right, piecing that together. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, there was definitely a hypnosis element to it. I guess I was trying to think, what is what is Chris thinking? When Chris right. sees, like, yeah, oh, yeah, man, yeah. This, this black guy isn't acting like any other black guy. He knows that something's weird is going on, but, you know, in me trying to get into the character's head, I was assuming that maybe he's just thinking, like, wow. No, that's a good like, point. Like, the, these people, these black people, their personality has been completely obliterated by, you know, their white... Because they've the, been the white family they've they been here for. on this fucking farm for the last ten years with the dying grandparents. Yeah, and, and, and once again, like that's quickly disproven. But I'm just saying that th- sometimes a movie, when you're tr- as you're trying to figure out what's going on in your attempts to discover it, you know, your mind goes to certain places that is ultimately proven wrong. But I think that a, a very a good movie like this is able to bait you into thinking about society or these. Uh, interactions between two black people or a white person, a black person in novel ways. And then ultimately, you know, you may be proven wrong, but there's something very interesting about that journey in which you're trying to figure out in what, and when you're trying to figure out what's going on, you are, uh, met with some challenging ideas. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the sort of juxtaposition between urban life and suburban life is something that's on full display. And it really actually reminds me of Stepford Wives. Um, where I think Chris and Joanna from Stepford Wives are sort of mirror images of each other just within different historical and cultural contexts. So instead of like the film being made during second wave feminism, obviously this film was written during the Obama era. And so there's a similar structural logic, but there's different historical and cultural contexts that make the protagonists different. But both are photographers. Both are not naive because, you know, you see Chris at the beginning basically saying like, hey, do your parents know that I'm black? So he's aware that going into the suburbs is kind of a foreign world. Um, They're both urban city dwellers that go into the suburbs and then they have to deal with those weird, that weird tension that the two different contexts of city life and suburban life present. So when he goes into this suburban life, Uh, I think there's a great term for it. It's the embrace that smothers. It's like, yeah, you can come and be a part of our suburban life just so long as you suspend anything that is unique or individual about your identity and you sort of embrace this weird identity and it creates a sort of uh, robot class of people because you just become a cookie cutter uh, version of everybody else. And so I think that's what Chris maybe is first encountering when he first, you know, gets out of the car and starts walking around. And and to your point, Jared, about, you know, you're kind of in... Uh, what's the character's name? Daniel? Chris. <laughs> Chris. That's, that's uh, the name of the actor, Daniel. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, when, you know, you're literally in Chris's point of view the entire movie, except for the very beginning when you're with uh, 
the actress when she's like at Starbucks, and then and then once the twist happens, then you're kind of then you're then there's scenes just with the actress, you know. Uh, well, plus that opening scene where we follow Andre, uh, who later is Logan, mm, and he's walking through the right. suburbs, and more to and more to Austin's point, we start the movie with a black guy navigating the suburbs, feeling like a sore thumb, which is very indicative of what Chris is going to feel later in the movie. I have a question about that scene because that revisiting it this time, I uh, uh, I was wondering, like, so so they have a whole bunch of people that go out and get these by uh, uh, people. It's not like it's not just no. That was the, the brother. The, oh, so at the end of the movie, when do you find that out? So. Two things. One, at the end of the movie, when Chris is escaping, he gets into a car, and it's not his car. He's able to find the keys of the brother's car, and it's that same white car that we see at the beginning. And then secondly, I believe when Chris is sitting in the chair and he's being educated as to what the the coagula procedure is— uh, the guy who's about to take his body says, hey, you're the lucky one. At least you, I think what he's suggesting is at least you got to have sex with um, with Rose, whereas some of the other people literally just get beat over the head by the brother. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So there's a whole So I, th- I think like both, both the brother and the sister are basically collecting black people for this thing. Okay. And, and, and also, I have another question in terms of the logic of the movie. Is this a real family? Do like oh well I mean I don't think that everyone who comes to the party is part of an extended family but yeah I mean the family this is a family business basically it's a family business yes the guy who created it is I believe the grandpa who then inhabits the mind of the gardener Walter because I was all I was definitely I found myself you know saying like how much of their story is just a total lie that they're talking to him about I mean how much of it is a put on and how much of it is their real personality Mm. and what which parts are put on. Just the you know them to, uh, every scene that they're talking to him and stuff and, oh. and you know like like whenever whenever the daughters like like you know uh, all those weird questions they were asking you that just makes them just as bad as that racist cop you know like like is that just her putting on being this you know super progressive liberal girl you know or is it well yeah and I think this is a good and and actually at the end of this I want to go back to the cop scene because that's the most interesting scene in the movie to me um, but. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about white liberal racism, Hmm. uh, which I think is largely what the movie is criticizing. So let me just start this off with something that Jordan Peele said. He said that the story came to him after reflecting on how many Americans thought the Obama presidency signified a post-racial era. And obviously he disagrees with that. And I think that, you know, you could take the... You could you you could look at this movie and the overall very bizarre, fantastic conceit and say that post-racial liberalism is something more terrifying than one would imagine. And so I want to kind of break that down. Um, so initially, when Chris first gets there, the Armitages or the Armitages are unnaturally eager to bring up black people stuff around Chris, as if this proves that they're not racist. Rose and her family, like, bend over backwards to show to Chris that there's not a racist bone in their body. So, you know, Dean is saying, by the way, I would have voted for Obama for a third time if I could. Uh, And Dean says, it's such a privilege to experience someone else's culture. And he rather unprompted goes into this whole thing about how Jesse Owens beat his dad in front of Hitler at the Olympic qualifying rounds and how instead of just telling a story about his family, he goes on about how great it is that a black person... Uh, one in front of Hitler showing that his Aryan race stuff was bullshit. 
the brothers talking about his body, how if he trained his body, he could be a jujitsu master. Right. I think so. Like this desire to experience black culture is disingenuous. So yeah, I, I kind of wanted to talk about that. What you guys and I know that uh, Austin and I talk about kind of Zizek's discussions about racism. And, and let me ask you, Austin, do you think that that Zizek or similar thoughts about uh, race? play into this film? What, what, I'm sorry, what does Zizek say well, about I, race? I feel like Austin's probably going to be better <laughs> okay. at explaining it than me. <laughs> yeah. Unless you don't want to, Austin. No, yeah, I mean, Zizek is, uh, it depends. A lot of people lately have been giving Zizek a hard time for some of his quote-unquote hot takes, maybe you might say, but he's always been a provocateur. Um, he's kind right. of the clown philosopher, right? And um, his disposition is that the progressive, white, liberal, like, let's join the side, let's be like an empathetic ally to those who are marginalized is actually just a uh, a patronizing and ultimately harmful political act. And that really what he says that he's like, when I talk to my black friends or when I talk to my gay friends or whatever, he's like, they say the same thing. He's like, uh, they all just want to be treated like shit, just like everybody else is kind of his sort of pessimistic take on it, right? But he's also kind okay. of notoriously a, a misanthrope, you know? So I, I agree with his his willingness to be critical of an of an issue that seems to be kind of like the mainstay of what it means to be a good white person in the West right now, right? Which is the progressive liberal disposition. And he kind of says, I think there are some problems with it because it doesn't really challenge the the dominant hegemony of of ideology. So I think there's something interesting in that. Um, and I think the way that that works with regards to this film in particular is that there's like a feigned, nice, white, liberal disposition that gets targeted a lot. But this disposition is really only a disguise for the truth, which is that black bodies are merely to be used or exploited to serve the ultimate purpose of the white power structure. And that ultimately there's no place for the totality of the black experience, right? So black minds, black thought, black consciousness, um, the things that make one a subject with a capital S or the, the things that make one or that give one agency, those things don't exist. Um, so even for the supposedly sympathetic white liberal, the vision of the world is still ultimately white and black voices are meant to be silenced. And so the Armitage family, Rose in particular, uh, and this goes to what Ryan was just asking a minute ago, they're adept at playing that role of the progressive liberal. And I think this is something that that could be kind of peeled back from maybe just a surface-level reading of the film. They play the role of the pro progressive liberal quite, quite well, but maybe what's being said is that even this role-playing act of being a progressive white liberal that is like a, a sympathetic ally or an empathetic ally, this political orientation is still highly problematic um, because really what happens is <laughs> that we're going to have to sort of ding every time he says it. <laughs> some sort of, some sort like of noise. No, like I'm, a, sorry. Like a money I'm sorry. Jar? No, no, what you're saying is great. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a money jar for every time I do it that goes into the uh, Patreon account or something like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but, but this idea that, you know, that you're a good white progressive, it, it, it does have uh, cracks in it. It has tensions in it because it doesn't really seek to actually dismantle anything, but rather it just perpetuates the modern approach, which has two, two effects. One, um, it's implicitly a racist itself because it's built on the history of black bodies. Um, it uh, is itself, and, and we can talk about this a little bit later, but there's a movement called Afro-pessimism that I think really explains this better. But two, that 
that really this, this white liberal progressive disposition is just a facade for the furthering of the white power structure because it never really allows itself to become harmed or challenged. It never endangers itself. It's not self-critical, but it's always powerful. It's always in control and it's always victorious. And so I think that's really something that you could see about this role that this Armitage family are playing. They're very good at playing it, just like white progressives in America are very good at playing this role, but they only do so to the extent that they won't harm or challenge their own um, hierarchical status. Yeah, well, you well put said. it, you, you well said. So let me ask you this. If the movie wins Best Picture, like, you know, it, it, is that not just Hollywood, which I, I mean, at least in my opinion, is very much part of this very, like, kind of false, sanctimonious progressiveness like who's who wins if he if it wins best picture because isn't that just playing into the like oh you know the the power structure of the academy which is mostly old white guys using uh this su supposed progressive film as almost like fashion to show their own progressiveness where at the end of the day the academy is still run by old white dudes we need another ding for a meta from for meta jared oh yeah meta, meta jared and meta jared and problematic austin um did you guys see um, oh God, I just forgot his name. Uh, the beautiful black guy that was in Cabin in the Woods, Jesse. Oh God, Jesse Williams is that his name? Yeah, Jesse Williams, right? Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Jesse Williams. Um, anyway, people that are listening know who I'm talking about, and if it's not Jesse Williams, feel free to yell at me on Twitter because I'm being a dumbass. But anyway, he gave a speech at the BET Awards for I think like his uh, humanitarian and civil rights actions and things like that, and the the speech went viral. Right. And it is a very powerful speech, you know, talking about um, like black liberation and black magic and and things like that and talking about black struggles. And it, it went viral for, for good reasons. It was, a, it was a beautiful speech. But um, there was another award show and I can't remember what it was, but Dave Chappelle and D.L. Hughley went off script and they started like roasting Jesse Williams a little bit. They're like, Jesse, come up here and say something for five minutes. It's going to make white people feel bad about themselves for 20 minutes. And, <laughs> and the audience, of course, cracked up. And there is something about Hollywood culture that has this weird, this weird relationship to, to wanting to utilize that speech, you know, um, to say like, ah, yes, we want this person to have a platform as well. But at the same time, to also kind of try to this feigned self-denigration. I'm just not sure how far the self-denigration actually goes. So I think you're absolutely right, Jared. There is something that, that needs to be explored. If it wins Best Picture, um, does that mean that it's just Hollywood trying too hard to pat themselves on the back to try to show how progressive they are? Or is it authentic? And then at the same time, even if it does happen, even in a cloud of shit, there can still be some good stuff in it. So even if it does right. win, at the end of the day, the if it wins, reasons, it's it, still it a badass a movie. Yeah. yeah, it's still a badass movie. And then once again, it's probably my favorite movie of the year. So I would probably want it to win, but I guess I don't want it to win because you know, it's been voted on by a group of people who probably make very politicized decisions and don't seem to really be as concerned with. Uh, achievement in form of filmmaking, but that's just, you know, my opinion. <laughs> I mean, the Oscars are basically the world's largest industry awards anyway. It's not really ultimately about, like, is it literally the best film that came out that year by some sort of objective measure? It's literally like an industry office party. Right. So uh, I actually, I, I think we're on to a really interesting conversation. I actually wanted to, uh, so you said Afro-pessimism? Is that the move? I'm actually, yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually very curious about that. 
Okay, yeah, so it can mean two different things. One form of Afro-pessimism is uh, with regard to like international relations, and it's the idea that Africa, because it's been so torn apart by colonialism, um, you know, is, is um, unable to pull itself up by its own bootstraps or whatever, something along those lines. And that's not the, the version that I'm talking about. The more popular version was coined by a guy named Frank Wilderson III, and uh, he's at UC Irvine, and then his colleague Jared Sexton, and there are other uh, figures like sometimes Ta-Nehisi Coates is couched in this. He's obviously a very popular writer that writes for the Atlantic and wrote a best-selling book called Between the World and Me that was really fucking fantastic. That if you haven't read it, um, I would recommend people to listen to it or to read it. I listened to it on audiobook. For and shame. he writes Black Panther. <laughs> What's that? And he writes uh, some of the Black Panther comics. And he writes some of the Black Panther comics. Yeah. Um, but um, so Afro pessimism is basically the idea that. Um, it has a couple of different things that it could mean. Um, but it's basically the idea that blackness is, um, well, that whiteness isn't something that exists as an identity in itself, but that is a distanced identity from um, being confronted by blackness. So it's a position of what they call anti-blackness. And so whiteness is essentially an anti-black disposition, um, something where that means that the white, the white, power structure or that whiteness as such is something that is constituted in its negation of the other. And the other then is blackness, but that blackness isn't uh, an identity in itself that has any sort of subjectivity or agency. Whereas, um, you know, like a Native American genocide or, um, you know, homosexuality, at least those individuals as marginalized still have an element of um, exploited agency. But blackness, according to Afro-pessimists, isn't even something that registers as a subject uh, or, or on the level of subjectivity, but rather as pure object for something that they call fungibility, which is um, just exchangeability. So blackness is just pure, almost non-existence. Or I don't want to say non-existence, but let's say inexistence. And so that's kind of where the Afro-pessimist position starts from. And it's this idea that... Um, that ultimately the most harmful thing is any disruption of what they call white tranquility. So anything that dis disrupts or threatens white tranquility is something that is a threat to the power structure. And so blackness as such is, is seen as an essential threat to white tranquility. Um, and that also what they ultimately want to do then is they want to, what they say, poison the narratives of progress, you know? So the ideas of modernity, that there's endless progress for them, is intimately tied up with this idea of whiteness as so defined as anti-blackness, which is also tied up with capital. So you have modernity, you have progress, you have whiteness, you have capital, and all of those things are what the West is built on, what America is built on, and those things are essentially anti-black, and they are defined essentially in their anti-blackness. Right. So even blackness is only defined in its relation to whiteness and therefore exactly. there's kind of no true independent authentic identity because the white culture, despite its efforts to be progressive, is still uh, not allowing for a f like I sense almost like a freedom of expression, would you say? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house is um, mm. I think Audre Lorde was the person who's coined with or who's uh, noted with with coining that phrase. And it's this idea that you can't use the tools of the of the system where you're currently living to try to take it down and to change it. Like nothing will ever work. You know, you have to create afresh.
Interestingly, and um, I'm actually stealing from Austin's ex-roommate, Michael Burns, who uh, wrote our episode on Get Out, and he did a lot of research, so I'm going to be drawing a lot from uh, his work, so shout out to Michael Burns, uh, who wrote our Get Out Philosophy of Get Out video, which is actually one of my favorite videos of the year, and uh, he mentioned actually that same Audre Lord quote and brought up an interesting thing that there's almost a reversal of that when... Chris uses the cotton he picks from the chair, which is a tool of the master's house when you think of cotton as something that's reminiscent of slavery. Mm. He does use that to kind of take down the master's house. So it's a very interesting because reversal Because he plugs it in that. his ears to not get e- hypnotized. Right, exactly. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, even just from like a plot perspective, that's so fucking clever. There are so many little oh, yeah. clever things in this, like little stuff from Jeremy's lacrosse stick, which is like a total symbol of white athleticism, to oh, yeah. the cotton, to um, the, the 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 recognition, or I don't like uh, when when they're walking through the house and the dad says something about like you know we had to board that up because of black mold. Um, you know, the guests mm. arriving in black limos because huh. they're going to leave in black bodies. Like, there's so yes. many little tiny nuggets that I feel like you could just analyze the little representational elements of this film, which I usually don't like to do in movies too much, but I think this movie really asks you to do that. Yeah, and so I'm going to keep going with that just because I've got them all written down. So Rose's mother uses a china teacup to hypnotize Chris, which is very white. Uh, <laughs> so you, you mentioned the lacrosse stick. Uh, and then interestingly... Oh, and then he hits Jeremy with a bocce ball. There's also uh, some very deliberate language upon the second viewing. So when he's giving Chris the tour, he says, my mother loved to cook. We keep a piece of her in here. And then Mm. he's talking about a piece of her in the kitchen, but then it reveals Georgina, who is actually his mother. And so uh, that's very clever. Mm. Uh, When when, uh, the dad is describing the party that people are about to attend, he says, oh, you know, it's a party. We like to play badminton and bocce ball, which are two very white sports. Uh, Dean is always saying, my man. The brother says, sup, fam. Um, Yeah, it's very deliberate, and it makes for a really exciting, interesting second viewing. Uh, There's Mm. also, he stabs Dean with a hunting trophy. One could argue, well, I think that has a double meaning. So on one hand, the deer, which we could talk about a little later, is a bit of a a symbol for his passiveness of his inability to do anything when his mother was dying, and then also with his inability to act in the sunken place and then when he takes the deer hunting trophy and kills dean it's he's no longer a passive spectator he takes action Mm. um and then and then maybe my favorite one is uh rose drinking her milk and eating fruit loops separately (laughs) rather than combining them which uh is very weird and very eerie and i think it's uh, it's just a cool thing to see why is that eerie people have said that before i've never got it like, I don't know. Seems who like does a, that? I've heard I, it. I don't know. I've heard it just said seems like a two weird. Ways. One, just because it's weird, but two, because the Fruit Loops are colored and the milk right. is white, and you can't mix the two. Right. She okay, wants. Gotcha. She kind of symbolizes her desire to control the integration of white and color. Okay. Which is interesting because I like that you use the word integration because I think that actually, um, and this is a very sensitive theme, but um, rape in Mississippi. Uh, during Reconstruction in the Jim Crow era was so common that black people it called it Mississippi integration because it was something that was just forced upon people. So there are all these intersubjective or I mean sorry, intertextual themes that are coming up that that really relate to the history of racial struggle in America. Now I don't know if that particular one was intentional. I mean you'd have to ask Jordan Peele about it, but there could be something about this idea of integration, which then also fits into the fact that Rose 
was sleeping with Chris, but maybe not with the others. And then in that same scene that Jared was talking about a minute ago when he's tied up and he's watching and the dude's on the screen talking about, uh, I think Chris says, oh, where's Rose? Uh, the dude on the screen says, oh, you dirty dog, which again mm-hmm. is a, a relation to the black body being a beast that is just this sexual um, this this like voracious sexual thing. So there's this idea of integration that then kind of relates to the history of of black struggles, obviously in the South, um, and uh, and then this idea of integration, and then she's not mixing the colors together. So there are all these themes that are kind of swirling together. Yeah, and so I think what you're touching on a little bit is another thing that we touched on on our video, which is uh, negrophilia, which mm. is kind of this white fascination with black culture. So it's this desire not only for the black body. Well, for the black body, sexually, athletically, and culturally. And I think that this is best embodied in the party scene when the one woman is like, how handsome is he? And she (laughs) walks up and touches his arms and pecks and the husband, the very old husband looks on. And this is just another very joyous thing about seeing it for the second time because now when the husband looks on, he's like, oh man, it would be so awesome to fuck my wife in that body, you know, (laughs) which is essentially what he's thinking. Mm. Um, And then she says like, so is it true? Is it better? And then of course, so that's like the (laughs) sexual thing. Is that like cuckolding? Isn't that what cuckolding is? Isn't that where it came from? It was like like effeminate white guys watching big black guys like have sex with their wives? I mean, I guess you could... I mean, yes, that is what that term means, but I guess you could consider it cuckolding if you're like, actually, your mind is inhabiting someone else's body and then fucking your wife. I mean, you could... Uh, uh, you, could you could argue that it's cuckolding, but it is you... That is fucking your wife, right? It's medical coding. Oh, okay. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Ding! (laughs) (laughs) So, um, then... So then the brother says, with your frame, your genetic makeup, if you really pushed your body, you'd be a fucking beast. By the way, I love that actor. He's the guy in uh, Baby Cronenberg's movie. uh, Oh, uh, Antiviral. Antiviral, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. what is it? David... What's his name? Brandon Cronenberg? Yeah, Brandon oh, Cronenberg. Uh, yeah, David Cronenberg's son also makes body horror movies. <laughs> and one of them is called Antiviral, and it's starring that guy. But all the actors, all the old white actors in that in that garden party scene are just amazing. Yeah. Like, you know, when he's like, oh, you know, I've seen Tiger play before, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, oh, right, it's exactly. Like, wow, so spot on. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we'll just kind of go through, so, you know, the grandma wants to preserve beauty by inhabiting the body of a beautiful black woman. The grandpa wants to relive the glory days uh, as an Olympic runner by inhabiting the body of a uh, black athlete. That's my favorite scene. <laughs> oh, when he's running? Running at the I camera. I mean, that, that shot has become famous, like yeah, iconic. The so, challenge. It's so cool. Have, yeah. you, have you done the challenge? No, but I've seen, I've the seen stuff on the internet. I've tried. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's more like, the. it's hard to really fl- uh, go pivot to the oh. to the right or left at the last second when, when you're about to get to the camera, you know? It's hard. <laughs> so people just, there's like videos of just people mowing each other over just because they can't stop? Yeah, well, it's mainly people like doing it too soon, you know? Okay. And then, yeah, the, 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 there are a few people that bump into each other and it's pretty funny. Okay. So the blind guy wants the eyes of, uh, of Chris's award-winning photographer eyes, although... You know, to be more like Austin at the beginning who was taking things too literally, I was thinking to myself like, yeah, but even if he has his particular eyes, isn't it more about perspective <laughs> that makes you a good photographer? Hey man, like, don't he's argue not going to the movie, dude. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Spend your disbelief. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, and then Andre, who was later Logan, was a musician. Oh, and by the way, if I may just shout this out, I'm very proud that uh, the guy who plays Logan slash Andre, uh, 
his name is Lakeith. He's a, he's a Wisecrack fan. He uh, oh, comment, no he, he commented on our Philosophy of Get Out video saying, hey, I played Logan slash Andre and I love this video. And that was really awesome to hear. He's fantastic. <laughs> he's in Atlanta too and he's fucking brilliant. Oh, awesome. And I, he's in, uh, he plays L in the uh, Netflix Death Note movie. Oh, sick. Okay. Yeah. I probably got that wrong because it's L, M, or N. I don't know. <laughs> um, so let's talk about The Sunken Place. Yes. Yes. So uh, let me just also start, because this is one of the few times where uh, the filmmaker slash writer has been very vocal about what these things mean. So uh, he, Jordan Peele, tweeted that the sunken place means we're marginalized. No matter how hard we scream, the system silences us. Mm. And I think we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier about, like, it's a way for white culture to banish black consciousness to a place where it can't be heard. I think we were talking about this a little bit earlier uh, when you know, whatever the kind of quote-unquote progressive framework makes a gesture towards appreciating black voices, but it actually, in a sense, silences them. Yeah, I mean, it withholds their potency. You know, the very thing that gives you power or agency or that defines your subjectivity. So they go into the background, they go into that sunken place, and it's it's a wonderful spatial and psychic metaphor for black marginalization or being made less than human. You know, you... You don't even exist in that in the space of the human, but we still want your body, which is interesting too because they're always trying to get him to stop smoking. And I didn't realize this until this time watching it, but it's like, oh, they don't want him to smoke because they want a healthy black body. And I was like, right. oh, that makes That's right. sense. Okay, um, but beyond that, I just think from a from a filmic perspective, this scene for me, I think, is so fantastic. The way that the sound kind of does that. As he gets sunken into yes. the sofa, visually the the use of like strange lenses and distortion, and then just being in the sunken place and him floating and suspending in blackness with uh, the little window that he can kind of see out of. I just think it's really effective visual filmmaking too. I mean, I know Ryan is is going to probably have some interesting ideas on editing and the actual the, the sort of formal visual perspective, but am I wrong? Did that like hit you guys as being an interesting scene from a, just a, a cinematic? Perspective yeah, as well. it's super just, you, you you get it immediately, you know, like once you see him floating and you, the, the violence happening and uh, uh, then you see him screaming, but you don't hear anything. You just are mm. like, okay, I see it. And then you see the person licking from that little, little view, uh, viewfinder shot, you know, it's very, it just makes sense. And, but w- what I would even say, uh, what's really smart is that from a filmmaking perspective is just how like, like this script, if you were to read it, you know, th- this was a very cheap movie, you know, Blumhouse yeah. makes $4 million, $5 million movies, and then markets the shit out of them, you know, and then you get the purge, you know, making hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's what this did, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and, and Jordan Peele, who's, you know, done, had all that experience on Key and Peele, you know, he knows budgets and stuff and he knows, okay, you know, if someone's going to take a chance on me, I want, I want to be able to have final cut on my movie, but I also don't want to spend a lot of money. It was a match made in heaven with him and Jason Bloom. And so the whole sunken place thing is such a brilliant, like psychological, uh, you know, filmmaking technique mm. that, but it costs no money. I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah. what you just hang them from wires, you know, it's black out the rest of the light. You know, it's like, you just have, have that weird little viewfinder uh, shot. And then you've got this awesome set piece, basically, that kind of is your main set piece of the movie. The rest is just that people talking around a house and kind of the racial tension is the tension of the movie. Mm. So yeah. I love just, yeah, like Jordan Peele knows how to make movies. He's going to make He's going to be a very successful person. Mm, More than he already is. I mean, he already is. More than he already is. Is Jason 
Bloom, is he uh, is he one of the persons nominated under the Best Picture? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, dude, if he won an Oscar, that would be so that'd be cool. so, awesome. that be awesome? so awesome. And right? I think that would be such a triumph for, for low to mid-budget filmmakers all across Hollywood where people say, no, you can't make low-budget films anymore and have it be viable because he's proven. Because I think what they do, and you guys might know as well, but I think what they do is like at a time, they've got like five or six films in production and then only like two or three actually end up making it to, to like wide release and the rest kind of do like direct to, to video or direct to stream or whatever. But then the the two that hit or the three that hit are the ones that, you know, it's like The Purge or like this that do end up making their right. return on investment so they can kind of keep this model going, which is fucking fantastic. Yeah, it's it's an brilliant. experimental model, yeah. Yeah, he is the model for successful independent filmmaking, like literally one of the only ones. Yeah, if you're a up-and-coming filmmaker, look at Jason Bloom's career and all the movies that he bets on and... Make movies like yeah, that. Uh, just to get, your, the just only to get other, your foot in the door, man. Yeah, the only other people making, uh, <laughs> you know, the only other way people are making independent film is if they have Megan Ellison, who's a billionaire heiress, uh, funding it. Yeah. That's like literally the <clears throat> only other way. Or the, the I the highly recommend films. finding a billionaire heiress yeah. if you're a filmmaker. Yeah. Sorry, what'd you say, Austin? Oh, I said, or the religious films, because they're doing it too. With like... Uh, you know, they've got this new Apostle of Paul film that's coming out by Affirm Films. That's probably like you know a two to ten million dollar film, and they're going to market the shit out of to, to Christians, and it's going to make like thirty or fifty million. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I actually, I mean, I'm aware of those films. I didn't know that they did so well. That's interesting. Some of them do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of them are. They a lot of them are making good money. So, all right, let's talk about Rod. Awesome character. I think that just from a screenwriting perspective. His utility is, it's really impressive the the different functions that he serves in the script. So on the, the first one is obvious, he's the comedic relief, which is, of course, important. But he's also an outlet for Chris to express his authentic self, like his authentic black self. Mm. So like, you know, throughout most of the movie, we see his performative self that he has to adhere to in order to appease the Armitage family and to be like, you know, the... Rose's black boyfriend who's nice to everyone. Um, but then whenever he talks to Rod, we get to see, no, this is who he really is. And we get to see, like, I guess what we're supposed to interpret as, like, the authentic blackness. So there's yeah. that. And then one other thing I, I love about the Rod character is he very skillfully teases the audience with information that kind of points them in the right direction as to what we can suspect is actually going on, but he doesn't quite get it right. So he's always <laughs> saying like sex slaves and you're they're hypnotizing people and <laughs> Logan is hypnotized, which is like almost right. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of pointing the audience into the direction of, okay, something weird is going on in which these this white family is doing something predatory with black people, but we, do, we don't quite get it. And it's crazy how what he's suggesting is so horrific, but in fact, it's something much more sinister. And so mm -hmm. I just think he's, and one last point I want to make, how awesome is the dog that he's dog sitting? That dog looks amazing. <laughs> Does it look like your dog, Jared? It's like a bigger version of my dog. Yeah. Yeah. He just yeah, looks yeah. like such a friendly dude, you know, just a cool dog to chill with. Looks like a pretty chill dog. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's it's definitely not on accident that he's a TSA agent either, which, um, you know, the TSA are kind of known for being a large employer of African-Americans in the United States. And it's because the, the airport hubs are Atlanta, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, et cetera, you know, places that all have large black communities and they hire in that local urban area. So I think that's something that's obviously intentional. And then I think at the same time, What's nice, the TSA aren't known for being like this agency of heroes that go out and solve crimes and save the day, but the police are. And who are the ones that he tries to go to? The police. And they refuse to help because 
the police don't help black people. And I think that's kind of what's being intimated here, right? So then what does he have to do? He has to take matters into his own hands and he becomes the fucking hero. And so there is something interesting about his skepticism to power. Obviously, he's like, oh, the white people and their sex slaves and then the police don't help, even though the woman at the police office is black. Um, it doesn't matter. And I think that was a deliberate choice as well. It's it's not that the individual black officers are racist, that the structure itself isn't going to lend itself to um, to serving the black community as much as it would serving the white community. And I think that's something that Peel is trying to articulate. And and you see that clearly. And so uh, so then he saves the day and he becomes the hero at the end. Okay, so... We are, I mean, this is such an interesting movie. Uh, I feel like there's so much more to talk about. I want to move on to the cop scene and then some closing questions I want to pose to you guys. So the cop scene I find to be really interesting and I want to frame it in, so earlier, Ryan, you brought up when Rose is, they're about to go to bed and Rose is apologizing to Chris for how weird her dad is acting and, you know, all that stuff. Of course, upon a second viewing, we know that she's just acting and that she's actually very racist. And she says, how are my parents different than that cop? And I think that Peel is prompting something there. And I want to ask, how did you guys read the cop scene? Um, I think it's a, it's actually a pretty complex scene. Um, the cop asked for his license, even though he wasn't driving, and then Rose makes a big fuss over it. What are your guys' initial thoughts about that scene? Is the cop being racist? What do you guys think? I mean, I I think that that we need to be careful when we speak about racism because we tend to, especially in America, we tend to just focus on the idea that it's an individual action of like pure bigotry, right? That like, I hate this minority group. And that's not what racism is. And that's what Peel is is articulating here. That racism is a structural thing. It's a systemic thing. And that it doesn't matter really what the skin, what your skin color is. I mean, it does, but that's kind of secondary. That's almost an incidental. What really matters is that that the the uniform of the police officer is what makes the disposition of any officer one that's going to that it's going to have a a skeptical attitude towards a black man when there's an incident such as this. So I think that's what's going on is it's not that this individual cop, you know, the white dude with the bald head, that he is like some, you know, Jim Crow lynch mob kind of representative. No, it's that he, the fact that he even asks for the driver's license in the first place, that interestingly enough that uh, that Rose defends Chris on he didn't need to ask for Chris's driver's license. He didn't need to, but he did. And so what I think Peel is drawing attention to is this weird this weird tension that exists in the relationship between the average black man in America and the average police officer in America, regardless of skin color of the police officer, because the badge and the uniform represent a completely different system. And so I think that's kind of what's going on. Now, obviously, Rose is playing the part of the white progressive again, right? So she's overcompensating. Like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Fuck you. You know, and she's standing up, she's making a scene about it, which then makes Chris feel uncomfortable because he's kind of, and I think this is a really nice metaphor, he's like the deer that they just hit. He's kind of more passive. He isn't wanting to stir up a hornet's nest. He knows what it's like to be a black man in the presence of a police officer. You don't ask questions. You don't stir up the hornet's nest because shit can go wrong, you know? 
Um, so I think he's kind of just more compliant, whereas she is trying to play the white superhero. And so all of those themes are being explored in that scene. Well, not only that, but she tells the cop, that's bullshit. Like, right. you know, fucking a black guy could never get away with that, calling a, telling a cop it's bullshit. And like, you know, she's just this pretty white girl who like is able to say under her breath, that's bullshit, cop. And then the cop just like walks away, you know. Ooh, that's interesting, I think that, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she can swear at the cop and be aggressive. Right. To your question on, you know, my my reaction when I saw that scene. When I first saw the scene and he just, it, that's why I think the scene is so awesome and kind of, and like, like Austin saying, really complex. Like when the cop initially says, hey, can I see your license? My initial reaction was, just, okay, it's a cop being a cop, you know. And then, and then once she makes a big thing about it, you know, it's like, you know, and then the cop even realizes, oh, I see where you're, I see where you're going with this, you know, right. like, mm. and then you as a viewer are kind of like, oh, I see where she's going with this, that what, you know, yeah, why does he need to, uh, the, the license, you know, and it almost, mm. you know, <laughs> right, it is, it, it is, I'm sorry, it plays a trick on you, basically, it, right, it is complex, because on the one hand, she is overdoing it. And then later we learn that she is, in fact, very racist. But more to the Zizekian point, I'm not saying that necessarily we agree with Zizek, but if we're going to, like, you know, playfully take a Zizekian reading of this, like, is the cop not just treating Chris like he would any other asshole? You know, like, like he's treating him as shitty. I mean, look, I haven't been pulled over a lot. I'm sure that, uh, you know, a black person could probably speak to their experience better than I could. But I will say that I have been pulled over with a friend. And I don't, I, like, I don't know what, common procedure is but i've been pulled over and i wasn't driving and i i was asked for my driver's license i mean it's happened to me twice uh i, I is that common procedure i don't really know but um, yeah. i think that it can be read that the cop is just doing his regular thing and then rose being the real racist that it's ultimately revealed at the end of the movie is you know the one overcompensating being the kind of like silencing white liberal but i think either way it definitely does show that uh, you know, like when Chris sees Rose call the cop out on bullshit, he's just like, what are you doing? Like, you know, <laughs> right. black black people can't get away with that. I'm just, you know, just play it cool. And I think that even if the cop isn't racist, more to Austin's point, it does comment on the fact that there is a structural racism because Chris is willing to be so um, so agreeable to the cop because he knows that you just don't fuck with them, whereas Rose is able to just even call bullshit right to a cop's face. And then the cop, not only does nothing happen, the cop just like walks away. Right. Well, you said something a minute ago. You said maybe this is just standard procedure. That's precisely the point. If it is standard procedure, that's fucking an issue that needs to be addressed. To ask because, for people's licenses? Uh, if it's if it's an aggressive, you haven't done anything wrong, but I'm a police officer and I'm going to use my power to do what I want to do in a situation right. that really doesn't sure. require any sort of law enforcement. Like, a deer was hit. Nobody was injured. Everything's fine. Thanks for your help, officer. No one's injured. You can go your way. You don't need our licenses. You don't need to scan us. You don't need to check our identity whatsoever. But this idea that there is this implicit acceptance that somehow police officers have this power to be able to just do that sort of thing and engage in that activity, whether or not you're white or black, is one level of problem, and then which is one issue that needs to be dealt with. And then I think even more than that, the fact that Chris is black, and I think that this film obviously has a social message, then it even heightens that issue even further by recognizing that this use of power and this deployment of power is, is something that needs to be addressed. Well, I, I see, I think... Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with you, but it's like, th I think you, kind of, you and Jared are kind of talking about two different things, because you're talking about more about, you know, police authority, and then this is 
you know, Jared's kind of talking about the racial aspect too, which is the whole problem, I feel like, with a lot of these racial problems, which is there's the conflict between someone's intentions, the optics of the situation, you know, how everyone perceives them differently. There's a whole historical element to it, you know, that, you know, so basically it's this whole melting pot of conflict that it's hard to it really depends on who you are is how you interpret every situation like that like, right well you yeah. can't and, and from the afro afro pessimistic perspective you can't separate power from race so the fact that the police have power is because they are an outworking of colonial oppression so like the first modern the, the, the modern police that we have were police officers in ireland from the uk from scotland yard who were sent to ireland to control the uh irish farmers so that they wouldn't revolt against the crown. And then further to that, the expansion of that in, the, in America were um, former slave owners to prevent slaves from running away. And that's where modern police came from. So the police structure itself is part of that modern, progressive, capitalist uh, um, uh, movement that is built on anti-blackness from the Afro-pessimistic perspective. And I think that that's there in this film quite a bit. All right, so I want to move on to one. Uh, I have two more points. Uh, so one is I want to draw our attention to the beginning of the movie when Chris asks Rose about his about her parents. Do they know I'm black? Did you tell them? And she says, "No." Should I have? And she like almost makes fun of him for the fact that like, why would I tell my parents that you're black? That doesn't matter. And my question to you guys is, what's the real answer? Like, should like should she have told him? Is it weird that she didn't or should she not have? Assuming that she's not, assuming that she's just a regular girl and she's not like part of the weird racist cult that we find out at the end. What's the real answer? I don't understand the question really. So she makes fun of him for saying like, why would I tell my parents that you're black? Like that doesn't matter. <laughs> um, and then he says, well, look, it's weird that you didn't tell them I'm black. If I'm your first black boyfriend, they should know, you know, before I come and they're super surprised. And, you know, on the one hand, you can see that, like, yeah, I mean, we all want to appreciate people independent of their skin color. So on the one sense, it doesn't matter. But on the other hand, there are cultural realities that uh, black people have to deal with that white people don't deal with. And it might be actually informative and helpful to make sure that, you know, they just know. Like, oh, well, what's the real answer? Like, he thinks it's we he thinks it's weird that you didn't tell them. And. So I think the answer is that it depends on your personal relationship with your parents and how their personalities, you know, but yeah, no, I, I don't think there's any, like, I agree with her probably more that like, like there's no reason to say, but if it's like, if you think you're, if you, if you like, Oh shit, my dad's kind of racist. Well, shit, maybe I should tell him. Well, you know? but th is it, isn't that kind of <laughs> like the whole colorblindness thing that people are often uh, criticized for that, you know, you can't just pretend that there is well, no, no but that's just the, 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 in society. Yes. Like when you're dealing, you know, with employers and schools, you know, yeah, like, like that's one thing, but when you're dealing with your family, like, you know, like you have a different relationship talking to your mom and dad than you do talking to, your boss or whatever. Like my my girlfriend is white, but she's Polish, and I told my parents that, and that seems like totally inconsequential. But it's just something that you tell them. It's it's almost weirder right. to not tell them, you know. Like I think, like it, it seems like you're deliberately omitting something. I, I'm not that saying you is, shouldn't. I'm not saying you shouldn't tell them. I'm not saying that if you do tell them, then you're kind of going out of your way, you know, whatever. I, I'm saying that it doesn't matter, and it just depends on the, the person. Any thoughts, Austin? I mean, I think I think this is exactly what Peel is getting at with this idea of yeah, me too. the post-racial <laughs> Obama era. Um, the colorblind thing that you're talking about, that's exactly what the post-racial world 
represents, right? So her attitude, her being so quick to be like, nah, it's cool. You're just a dude. They don't care. Just as long as you're a dude, you're a human. That's the that's the ignorance of the post-racial mentality. Now, that doesn't right. mean that I think that if I start dating an African-American woman that like in the first month, I need to be like, hey, mom, now before I bring her over, there's something I got to let you know. Right, you right. Know, uh, that's what I'm saying. It, you shouldn't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so I think this is a really sticky issue. And to be completely honest, I don't have an answer. I think this is one of those things where... Uh, I, I mean, I, I I agree with Ryan. I guess organically it would come up, you know, maybe at some point, but it depends on how it comes up. If you're trying to, but if you're trying to hide it because it doesn't matter and because you want to show how above the idea of difference you are, then I think that that is something right. The virtual right. the like, virtue signaling part is one thing, but that that's where all the intentions come in. It's like yeah. if you're if you're this super like oh my god, I'm so concerned about how radical you know progressive I'm seeming. That's right, one yeah. thing. But if you're just a person that's <laughs> just trying to live your fucking life, and oh yeah, I have a girlfriend. You know, I don't see anything wrong with just yeah, but or, or if it came I up and they were like, parents, "So, did you guys go to the beach on Friday?" And I'd be like, "No, mom, what are you talking about? Black people don't surf." You know, like if I said that, then she and then she'd be like, "Oh, okay, I get it." See, in a joke context, maybe that would be okay, or maybe I would get lambasted for being uh, playing into <laughs> stereotypes. I don't know. But well, look, um, I mean, we all agree <laughs> that you know, and a lot of what we're talking about is that being black in America is is a. I want to say in a sense like a condition. So if I'm telling my mom, hey, you know, my girlfriend's Polish and that's interesting because, you know, she has a different cultural experience than me, then definitely we would say the same thing with black people, you know, just as like yeah. a way of like, you know, telling telling my mom what my girlfriend is like, you know, like my mom wants to know what's your girlfriend like. And I think that if you didn't say that she was black, I mean, I think that that's a very essential part of any black person's cultural experience. And by omitting that, I mean, it's just a very effective, efficient way to communicate what somebody is like and and, and the challenges and the uh, experience that they've had growing up. So it, to yeah. me, it is weird not to mention it. Well, yeah, if, if they said, hey, what's your girlfriend like? And then I went and I tried to tiptoe around that she was black, then that's... That's, then that's a, unnecessary. That, that's a different conversation, though. Right. You're, I thought you're, the main question was, was should I go out of my way to go and warn my parents? No, it's I'm, not about warning. It's just that is it relevant or not? I and I think what, that it, is, it is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think if you're really trying to describe somebody and, you know, you want to say, oh, this is what she likes and this is what she doesn't like and this is where she came from and, and this is what her family life was like and all this stuff, I think eventually it, it I mean, it would come up. But if you're... If you're concentrating on it so much that you need to make it a point and there's this awkwardness and discomfort that accompanies it or that accompanies it, the reason that I find that interesting is because what that does is it reveals certain tensions. And I would want to get at those tensions from like a psychoanalytic perspective. Like, why are you so uncomfortable? Like, why are you so uncomfortable in, in talking about these issues and these things such as race and ethnicity and culture? And that to me is is interesting from like a like a just a philosophical and technical point. I, I don't have an answer. I don't know what the right yeah, answer is. Yeah, no, it's is, definitely complex. It's, yeah. So my last question, I know we're way over time right now, but so I actually consider this movie to be pretty unilaterally dark because it it, it shows, it critiques the way that white people interact with black people. But I guess my question to you guys is, does it offer an alternative we see that the way that, or, or, you know, we can metaphorically discern the ways that in this post-racial society that black people are being treated in a perhaps negative way. But the movie doesn't say, like, this This is not how white people should deal with black America, but this is. There is no alternative suggested. Or am I wrong? Do you guys think that there is? Well, 
I'm actually really glad you asked that question because it gives me an opportunity to say the one thing that was burning in my soul, which is to address the alternate ending. Are you guys familiar with the alternate ending, the original ending? I've heard of it, but I've not seen it. He goes to prison, right? Yeah. So at the end, he actually, so he kills Rose and it isn't Rod that shows up. It's the same thing. The lights show up on his face and you think, oh, he's fucked. And it actually is the cops and the cops come and they arrest him. And then the closing scene that cuts, that, that it cuts straight to is six months later, Rod comes to visit him. Chris isn't making, it's a really powerful ending. It's on YouTube for people to check it out. And then there's also um, uh, a director's commentary that accompanies it as well that you can find on YouTube where Jordan Peele talks about it. And it's really powerful. And it's, he's in jail and Rod is like, hey, I, you know, we can, we can do this. You can speak up. And Chris doesn't make any eye contact. And he looks up uh, at, at one point finally and he says, Rod, it's over. I stopped it. I stopped it. And he says that I think a third time. I stopped it. And it's so powerful. And then he hangs up the phone and he hangs his head and he gets up and he walks his, uh, walks away and goes into prison. One, as a martyr, because he stopped this procedure from any future occurrences. And two, Jordan Peele says he's defeated his own inner demon by going back for Georgina after the car scene. He like hits her with the car or whatever and he goes back for her, which is the thing that he didn't do with his mother's death, which has haunted him his entire life. And so he right. goes back and, and he helps this woman. And so it's uh, one, you get redemption for him as an individual. Two, you get him as a martyr. But three, and most importantly, you get the same story that you get. A white man is found over, I'm sorry, a black man is found over a white woman and he gets thrown into jail for the rest of his life. And that's the dire, there is no hope ending. But Peel said he didn't want to use that ending anymore because he felt like people were starting to get woke. People were starting to actually talk about racism. The Black Lives Matter movement was gaining steam by the time that the film was ready to to get released. So he wanted there to be a hero because the hero gives hope. Maybe not explicitly like you too can be a Rod character, but at least it gives you that this isn't just a dire no hope scenario, which would be the more maybe Ta-Nehisi Coates and Afro-pessimistic perspective. But there is a hope for potential collective agency and, and subjectivity to actually do something at the end. So it leaves you on an up note rather than a down. But I would say though that in terms of, I think really what you're asking though is, is all right, so all these seemingly progressive people are virtue signaling and basically put, uh, putting it on. So what, it, like how, do, how should people act? Is that right. kind of really, right. you know, and, and that I don't think there is, you know, cause like, kind of how Austin was saying before, you know, like the problematicity of, <laughs> of, of people like that. It's like, you know, I have a lot of progressive friends. I have a lot, you know, I'm from Memphis, but then I moved out here to LA. So I have conservative and, uh, you know, liberal friends. And then I have amongst the liberal friends, I have, you know, there's definitely some where I can see that they're just, it's a total just for show. And then there's some that are completely genuine, a hundred percent want to solve, you know, society's ills and they're trying to figure out how to do it. And honestly, if you were just met them both, you couldn't tell the difference, you know? So, but it, it seems like a lot of people think one of them is problematic, but then the people with genuine intentions, it's like, what do they do? And I, this movie, I don't think tells you that, but it does kind of, it's a critique of the, of the, of, right. of, of, the, and, and of the one movie, half of them. And I don't think the movie has it, to do that. Yeah. It doesn't have to yeah, do that I at mean, all. It, yeah. yeah. It's just, I, I just it, think it's, it's inter interesting question. question yeah. Right. Well, but he kind of yeah. does, right? Cause we talked about with the master's tools, he doesn't use the master's tools and he's able to defeat the master's house. You know, he uses the very tool of oppression, cotton, 
to defeat the enemy. So he uses the weakness that is supposed to be identified with the black experience, and he uses that to overcome. Now, is that a specific like program for overcoming oppression? No. Um, just like the ending ending on, a, on an up note rather than a down note isn't a specific program either. But it does provide you with a sense of hope and kind of indicates of, okay, yeah. maybe this is a way that you can circumvent the sort of oppression of this dominant power structure. You know, maybe not explicitly, but just kind of a sort of in terms of an attitude that it can offer, like an affective disposition or something like that. All right, let's move into the mailbag. We went way over time, so we're just going to do a couple. Ryan, what do you got for us? The first one's by Joe. This is more of a comment. He said, hey, guys, discovered your Show Me the Meaning podcast last week. Thoroughly enjoyed it, though I've only had a chance to listen to the Wolf of Wall Street and Old Boy episodes to date. My only gripe is that the majority of your thematic discussion attributed to the craft of, of the Wolf of Wall Street almost completely went to Scorsese. Terrence Winter is a bloody great writer. And mm. though the final film does vary from the script in places, the majority of the stuff you guys discussed is all there on the page before they ever picked up a camera. So I'd like to apologize personally to Terrence Winter, the, <laughs> uh, the writer of The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, me too. I guess we're all like auteur theory douchebags here and, <laughs> and think that it's all about the director. But yeah, dude, that script is fucking amazing. Ace. Terrence Winter, I bow, I bow down to you. And 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 I and I think Leonardo DiCaprio like had it for a long time and uh, like begged Scorsese to do, to do it. I think is the story mm, right. on the internet. Mm. And Dewey, um, here we go. We got Timothy who uh, on our video drone podcast. Hey guys, just listened to your podcast by Videodrome. It was, for me, the most thought-provoking movie you have covered thus far, so I thought I'd share a few thoughts I had with you. From the moment Max admitted to having hallucinations, I began to view him as an untrustworthy narrator, which led me to question whether or not these two rival factions ever existed outside the confines of his own mind. If he started having hallucinations from the first time he watched Videodrome, can you really trust anything he sees beyond that point in the movie? On another note, is the is the overstimulated media environment we find ourselves in driving us insane? What are y'all's hmm. answer to those two questions? Well, uh, the yes first to the one, last I, one. <laughs> I was going to say yes to the first one. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we kind of touched on this a little bit about uh, whether or not they ever met him and uh, Nikki Brand and uh, Max Wren. So, I mean, in your mind, do you think that that the whole movie of Videodrome is a hallucination because he it's sees possible. it pretty immediately? It's possible. I, I do you like once to again, think I, that. I, I, uh, do I like to think that? I like to think <laughs> that. Kidding. I like to think that it's uh, up to interpretation. There's, a, there's another fan theory about Get Out that's actually similar. That the whole thing is a fantasy of Rods. That um, as he's on the phone, he's fantasizing the whole thing about what he's expecting is going on, and so it gets crazier and crazier, and his story becomes more elaborate as he's creating it, and then he becomes the hero at the end. Now, I don't think it's accurate, but. Maybe maybe all of these films are all just hallucinatory experiences. I well, now yeah. I choose to believe that. At the end of <laughs> cinema, Neo from The Matrix is just going to wake up and say, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, since we went a bit over on the discussion, we're going to end the mailbag. We'll do more next week when we cover Gattaca. Also, guys, we've got an episode coming out on Saturday on Monty Python, and we're going to be doing an AMA for the first hour. It's posted on YouTube. So please come and hang out with us and ask questions. It's going to be at 10 a.m. Pacific time. 
Also, we wanted to ask for your help on something. So we are, like everyone in entertainment, an ad-supported company, and our sponsors want to know more about what y'all like. So if you have a second, please take the survey we have linked in the description. It takes less than a minute, and it will help us out tremendously. So if you have the time, I know I'm always asking you for reviews and stuff, but hey, if our content does anything for you, if it touches your soul, if it makes your life better, this helps us out tremendously. So thank you, thank you, thanks a ton. So that just about does it for today. I want to thank Ryan and Austin for gabbing with me. This was a lot of fun. Love this movie. Also a reminder that we are continuing our Rick and Morty podcast, The Squanch. So be sure to check that out. And as always, if you guys have questions, comments, or want to call me an idiot, uh, email us at movies at wisecrack.co. That's .co. And that does it for today. Where can we find you on the internet, Jared? Oh, on the internet. Well, I've told people that they can friend me on Facebook and people have been doing that. So you guys can continue to do that. What about you guys? (laughs) I got a new episode of Ryan's Game Show out on YouTube you should check out. Um, It's the Ryan's Game Show Game Show. Um, You can also follow me at Ryan's Game Show. Austin? Yeah, uh, you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, and we can delve into more of these philosophical themes, and I can get super wanky and jargony with you guys, because I love to do it. And he can get problematic. (laughs) 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 All right, guys, that's it for today. See you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. Peace.